This evening, this week, Lord willing, I want to talk about uh, the Lord's Church in particular. And I titled the the series uh, that I want to share with you uh, this this short half week uh, that God's way is the best. Um, that seems pretty obvious. I'm going to just go out on a limb and assume that there's nobody that disagrees with that statement. That's pretty universally accepted in the church. Um, if you disagree with that, let's talk afterwards. Let's not uh, start that discussion right now. But generally, everybody's going to say, well, yeah, of course God's way is the best. Um, well, then the problem then becomes is, you know, putting that into application and how, how well do we present that with our lives? And this particular psalm in Psalms 145 and verse number 10 is what brought some of these things to my mind and my study and what eventually kind of led into the, the series that Lord willing will go through this week. And the psalmist said in Psalms 145 and verse number 10, he says, All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power. To make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. And so the psalmist here, he says, he makes mention, he says, all your work shall praise thee. But then he talks about the saints. He says, thy saints shall bless thee. They'll speak of the glory of thy kingdom. Talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. And I wonder this evening if that, those words, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. If those words were a picture this evening, if instead of words, that was a, a family photo, if you will, would your picture be up there? Or to rephrase it, are those words descriptive of you and your life? Are you one that's going around blessing the Lord, speaking of the glory of His kingdom, talking about His power, making known to the sons of men His mighty acts and the glorious majesty of His kingdom? And I'll be honest with you, years back when I read that and I, I began to think about these things, I thought, I don't know that that's very descriptive of the way that I present myself as a servant of God. I don't know that that really, if that was a family photo, if you will, if that would necessarily be me. And it made me think about the way that I present the Lord's church to other individuals. And it made me think about the way that I talked to individuals about the church. Um, I'm going to use those terms uh, relatively interchangeably, uh, the kingdom and the church. Um, I'm going to talk about the New Testament church. We're going to talk about uh, the kingdom that exists here uh, on this earth and, and the kingdom that Christ uh, purchased with his blood from this church. But sometimes in my presentation of that, <clears throat> it may not have been a very good sales pitch, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. And I don't guess I've ever seen myself as a salesman. Um, but the scripture says we're ambassadors for Christ, correct? That we are representatives and we are trying to further that cause of his kingdom. And I remember growing up being convicted of some of the things that I stood for, some of the things that I thought were right, the, the correct way to worship, not necessarily knowing how to present those or maybe discuss those with people who might have seen things differently than me, I tended to 
when discussions about church or worship came up, probably have my head down and, and maybe kind of shy away from a lot of conversation about that. And when I did talk about that, it seemed like more often than not, I, I, I was kind of backed into the corner and, and the conversation kind of became about what I didn't believe in. I don't know if that ever happens to you, but it seems like sometimes the, the conversation might get steered to, well, you, you don't believe in this, or you don't believe in that, or you don't believe in the other. And sometimes that, uh, depending on who you're talking to, that, that congregation, that conversation might get steered that way, but that's not really the picture that's being painted up there, is it? And so I want us to talk about what we do believe in and what we stand for and why, and why we believe that God's way is the best. When you read the book of Ephesians, it talks about a plan that God had before the foundation of the world. The Apostle Paul references uh, that uh, sacrifice of Christ, and he says that it was in accordance with the eternal purpose of God. I have a set of plans with me tonight. I just grabbed one out of the stack. <clears throat> Been doing evangelistic work for about, about 20 years. About five years ago, my wife got pretty ill and um, on the side I started doing a little construction work as a plumber so I started doing a little bit of plumbing work when I when I wasn't around I told the, the guy that I worked for I said I I'm a servant of the gospel and that's always going to come first to me but if you can use me when I'm around then, then use me and so I started doing a little plumbing and so I do a lot in the construction trade and so it was a learning experience because early on you would go and you'd roll out this set of plans and uh you might get to a place and you might start putting some stuff together. And somebody might come along and they might say, you know, can we just take this, this little bathroom over here and move it just a few feet over here? Can we take this toilet and move it a few inches over this way? Or can we, you know, and early on I said, well, that, that doesn't seem like it should be a problem. And I didn't really necessarily understand a whole bunch about construction, about plumbing, all that. I was just a new guy that looking for some work to do. You know, <clears throat> it says before the foundation of the world. You know, before we pour a foundation on a house, there's already a plan of what it's going to look like. They've got the, the schemes, they've got the elevations, they've got the roof pitch, they've got the slab, they've got all of that information. It's already planned out. If it's going to be a good house, it is. <laughs> there's been some they, they build without plans, and, and I'll tell you right now, they don't usually, it doesn't usually go well. They don't usually end up with a good product. God had a plan before the foundation of the world. You know, sometimes men come along today and they say, I don't see the harm in shifting this around over here and I don't see the problem with moving this over here. And it's because they don't understand the totality of the plan. They don't understand the implications that little things like that have. A lot of times, you know, now having a little bit more experience when somebody says, well, what would it cost to move this toilet over a foot to the left or a foot to the right? And you do the math and you give them a number and they say, oh, I can't believe that it's that much. And they don't understand the implications of a small change beginning because somebody that was an engineer or an architect, they, they drew those plans up and they know that lumber comes in certain lengths and if you go past that, then you got to upsize. And there's a whole bunch of things that start happening when you start moving the plans around if you don't, you don't, you don't understand a lot of times. And that's problematic. When it comes to the church, 
it comes to Christianity in general, using that term in its, in its most general sense, the way the world might use it, of people who identify themselves as Christians. Man's trying to turn the church into something that God never intended for it to be. They're trying to, 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 to restructure the church in a way that's not by God's design. And rather than try to talk about the thousands or millions of different ways that that's been done, I just want to talk about God's plan. And the desire, my goal for the weekend, for the, for the, for the remainder of our time together, is that we increase our, our resolve, that we increase our confidence, our conviction, that our faith is strengthened in that simple statement concerning the church and the kingdom, that God's way is the best way. And so that's the, that's the goal this evening. <clears throat> so I want to talk about seven attributes of doing things God's way. And these are terms that we're probably very familiar with. They're very basic, elementary terms of Christianity. But what we find is that these attributes of doing things God's way, though we can isolate them, though we can give them distinct and separate names, and we can identify separate parts of them, that they're so overlapped and intertwined they all relate to one another. And when we say God's way, we're implying these seven attributes that we're talking about tonight. The first of which being the way of faith. Now, <clears throat> the scripture says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I'll be honest with you, I think I, I probably misapplied what that verse meant uh, quite a bit when I was younger. I, I, I probably read that and said, well, you know, faith is based on evidence and, and kind of made that point out of, out of that passage of Scripture. And that's not to say that faith isn't something that's based on evidence, but that's not what that Scripture is saying. It says faith is substance. Faith is evidence. Now, if you're me, that didn't necessarily help me understand faith a great deal more than what I thought that I did. So we go to those Greek words and how they're defined. And the lexicon defines those in different ways. That, that word substance, it's defined as assurance, confidence, substance. Um, the word evidence is defined as proof or conviction. And when you think about the application of that, Young's literal translation says faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen or not seen. Faith is confidence and conviction. When we think about how much faith we have in God's way being the best, are we confident and convicted that God's way is the best? And we sometimes wonder and we see people maybe doing things a different way than what we find in the Scripture and we think, well, what's wrong with that? Well, well, maybe that's good. Maybe we need to do that. That's a lack of confidence. That's a lack of conviction in a simple statement that God's way is best. Because I don't have to understand everything that all... The, there's, some, there's some great minds in here. I look out and I know there's some guys a lot smarter than me, that a lot better at math than me. I don't have to understand all the problems it's going to cause to make one little change to know whether I'm doing what's on these plans or not if that makes sense. So somebody might come to me and somebody might come to one of you younger Christians and they might say, what's wrong with doing it this way? And that may be a struggle. That may be a difference. You might go to the scripture and go, well, I don't know how to answer that question of what's wrong with doing it some other way. But the answer is, I don't have to understand 
what might be wrong with every other possible way of doing anything to be confident and convicted that whatever God said to do, that's the best way to do it and that's the way we need to do it. And faith is confidence and conviction. That's what it is. And that's something that we need to grow in. Faith is something, it's not one of those things that it's, it's not a check yes or no box. You remember that, that individual in Scripture, I think it was about Mark chapter 9, where the Lord, he wanted the Lord to heal his son. And the Lord said, if you believe, and he says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. He had some faith, but he needed more faith. And the Lord helped him with that, didn't he? He, asked, he granted his request to heal his son, and in doing that, he increased his faith. And our faith needs to grow. And that can happen by our study and our time spent in God's Word so that our confidence and conviction that God's way is the best can grow with that knowledge. <clears throat> A couple verses later, down in verse number 6 of Hebrews chapter 11, he says, But without faith, or in the absence of faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So a few points that we want to notice from this verse. First of all, he says, in the absence of faith or without faith, it's impossible to please Him. That doesn't mean that it's going to be difficult to please God. It doesn't mean that you're going to have to try extra hard to please God. It means it simply cannot be done. It, you can't please God without confidence and conviction. If you're not confident and convicted in that statement that God's way of doing things is the best, and we're making application to the order, to the design, to the organization of the church this week, that statement applies to everything. To the order and structure and design of the family. To marriage. To what a marriage is. To what a marriage isn't. To what it ought to be. Anything that you can think of. All things that pertain to life and godliness. That statement is true. God's way of doing things is by far the best. Without faith, without confidence and conviction, you're not going to please God. <clears throat> what do we need to be confident in and convicted of in particular by verse number 6? He says that God is, that God is, that He exists, that He's Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the end, that He's the designer, that He's the lawgiver, that He's the King of kings, that He's the Lord of lords. We could go on and on and on, that God is. We have to believe that God is. We have to be confident and convicted of that. And then we have to be confident and convicted about God's character, what kind of God He is. He's the kind of God that rewards those who diligently seek Him. He's a rewarder. He's a God that wants to reward you for diligently seeking Him. And if you're confident and convicted that God rewards those who diligently seek Him, what's going to happen? What's going to be the result of that? You're going to have to diligently seek Him, aren't you? And there's no other logical uh, course of action if you're confident and convicted that God rewards those who diligently seek Him. So we began to talk about another topic that seems to be, oddly enough to me, almost taboo. When you talk to people who identify as Christians and you start talking about obedience, that becomes uncomfortable. They, that's almost been painted as a bad word in a lot of Christianity. It seems far-fetched, but... That's, that's the case that you'll find when you begin to discuss these things with other people. In Hebrews chapter 5, 
in verse number nine, speaking of Christ, it says, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And so this passage of scripture makes that direct connection, doesn't it? Between salvation and obedience. That Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to everyone. That's not what it says. It says to all who obey. And so the necessity of obedience is taught in God's word. When we think about God's way, it's not something, something that is to be considered optional. And a lot of people look at it that way. But that's not, that's not how faith looks at it. Faith, in Hebrews chapter 11, this time verse number 8, it says this, speaking of Abraham, it says, by faith Abraham obeyed. What does that mean? What's the word obedience mean? It says, when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, he went out. And it's very simple. It's not complex. It's not difficult to understand. Obedience. And we see that example in Abraham, the father of the faithful he's referred to as. He was called to go out. He went out. And you know what else it says? He didn't know where he was going. He didn't have to have all the understanding, didn't he? Did he? Paul, in Ephesians, when he's talking about God's eternal purpose, when he's talking about that uh, plan that was there before the foundation of the world, he says, in other ages, it wasn't made known to the sons of men. He, he described it as a mystery. It was there, it existed, but it was rolled up and Abraham didn't get to see it. He didn't get the blueprints rolled out in front of him. So did he say, well, if I can't see the blueprints, I'm not going to... No, he obeyed. He went out. He did what God told him to do. He obeyed God. And that's confidence and conviction that God's way is best. And we see that in Abraham's action. Jesus equated the two in John chapter 14 and verse number 15 when he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And that's why I describe these, these things as attributes of doing things God's way. Because really when you talk about being obedient to God and you talk about loving God, you're talking about the same thing. That's what Jesus said. You know, there was an individual that wrote a book about love languages and how different individuals maybe express love and, and desire love to be expressed in different ways. Some people, maybe their love language is giving gifts or receiving gifts. They like to be gifted. Maybe some people like to be praised. Maybe some people prefer other expressions of love. Jesus made it very clear what, he, what his love language is, didn't he? He said, if you love me, Keep my commandments. That wasn't new, was it? We saw that in the Old Testament when we were told obedience is better than sacrifice. God's love language is obedience. And so when we, if we desire to express love towards God, then we're going to be obedient to God. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 3, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And so that's, how we express love to God the way that God wants it to be expressed by taking His plans and not looking at them as suggestions or options, but looking at them earnestly, intently, and sincerely as 
commands to follow, as plans to be executed, and to seek that out. In Matthew chapter 22, in verse number 37, <clears throat> Jesus said unto him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And I have heard individuals present arguments <clears throat> about obedience and the idea that if you try to tie obedience to salvation, then you're teaching salvation by works. And I've heard people argue that, and they'll, they'll go to great lengths to try to argue that. But I've never heard anybody try to argue that you can be saved without loving God. You ever heard anybody try to make that argument? That they believe that you could be saved without loving God? And God equates the two, doesn't he? Love and obedience. He says, that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's my love language. That's how you express love to me is by doing my will. And so we need to be confident and convicted, faithful, and loving to God and expressing that love and obedience to His will. In Romans 13 and 10, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And so we have passage after passage that shows that love is, uh, is an action and love is a response. It's a response of faith. And it's, we see that these terms intertwine and are almost inseparable in so many ways and to act in love is to do God's will. Simplicity. And this is something that <clears throat> it, may, it may seem like it, it's a little out of place. I want to read Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. The Apostle Paul, we made reference to the book of Ephesians. He says, For this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed ye have heard of the dispensation of grace which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already. By which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And so he makes reference to that plan, to that blueprint. And he says, God revealed it to me. And I briefly wrote to you about it. And you know what he said? He said, when you read, you can understand it. Some people today might teach that, that you have to have a special degree of learning to be able to understand God's Word. And you need a bunch of letters after your name to be able to understand God's Word. The Apostle Paul said, when you read you read what I wrote through the, through the Holy Spirit, you can understand it. And there's simplicity in Christ. There's simplicity in God's way. And that's not to, to say... And it's not to oversimplify and to say that every single thing in the, in the Bible is, is simple. But there's a simplicity of doing things God's way. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, he says, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, 
so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He says, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom, you have not pre- whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. You notice that that, that sentence ends with an exclamation point. And that statement is kind of made in the fashion of a rebuke. And I want to tell you that there's a lot of other Jesuses being preached. There's a lot of other spirits being preached. There's a lot of other gospels being preached. And they're of no count. God's way is best. In fact, it's the only way. And that's what he says, which is not another He says, you might put up with that. And certainly I hope that your confidence, your conviction, your level of faith in God's way being the best, that you wouldn't put up with that for a second. That you wouldn't put up with another Jesus being preached. That you wouldn't put up with another design, another plan for the church than that which is laid out in the scripture. There's simplicity in Christ. There's peace in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse number 33, several items of the assembly are being regulated in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Several items. And as he begins to wind that down, he says in 33 of chapter 14, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And so, doing things God's way is the way of peace, and it's a way that keeps peace and brings about peace. God is not the one that authored all the confusion that's out there. We have men to thank for that, that have come along, and there's been so many other ways, so many other Jesuses, so many other spirits, so many other, 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 other gospels being preached that there's a lot of confusion. But there's simplicity and there's peace in God's way. And going to that source, going to the blueprint that we have in God's word is where we can have peace and find that peace and help to bring about that peace. In John chapter 17 and verse number 20, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that's talking about me and you. That's talking about anyone who's ever read the scriptures faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God Romans chapter 10 and verse number 17 and so Jesus is praying for his disciples but he says I'm not just praying for them I'm praying for everyone that might believe on me through their word and this is his prayer that they may be one that they all may be one as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And Jesus wanted his followers to be united. And he said if his followers were united, that that would be a powerful statement to the world. And that that would be something that would create faith. What if there wasn't all the discord and all the disharmony and all the other gospels and all the others that are being preached and there was just one body 
with one message. That would be very powerful. Very powerful. And that was the desire of Christ. How is that possible? Well, men are always going to come along and, and mess that up, aren't they? But if it was to ever be possible, it would be only one way to bring that about, and that would be that God's way is the best. That we laid out God's blueprint, that we followed His plan, and that we built upon whatever foundation may have been previously built, that we stuck to His plan and His blueprint, and we followed His way, way of peace. God, doing things God's way is the way of hope. <clears throat> I want to talk about how the Bible uses the word hope. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 20, he says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. And so he says, he uses two phrases, earnest expectation and hope. When you do the word studies, one of them he's talking about an intense anticipation. We might call it a, a longing a burning desire, if you will. He's got this burning desire and hope. And that hope is the word expectation. And a lot of times when we use the word hope nowadays, we think of it more like the word wish. Like maybe you're fixing to blow out the candles on your birthday cake and you go, oh, I wish that I would win the lottery. Except you didn't buy a ticket and you know you're not going to win the lottery. That's not what hope is. That's not what hope is in the Bible. A more accurate example of the word hope would be for me to say that when I've been gone for some time, if I've been traveling, I've been on a trip, I hope to find a stack of bills in my mailbox. I said, well, why would you hope for that? Well, it has nothing to do with, with what I want. It has to do with what I expect. Because I get electricity, and I get water, and I have paid insurance, and I, all those things. And all those people are going to want their money, like clockwork. And they're going to send me a little piece of paper in the mail to remind me to give them the money that I owe them. And I expect that to happen. And that's what the Bible's talking about when it uses the word hope. That we expect something to happen. Just like we expect those bills to come. They talk about the certainties in this life being death and taxes. We have expectations that those things are going to be there, aren't they? We have a hope in Christ. We have an expectation. In John, 1 John chapter 3, verse number 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know when, we, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so, what's he talking about? He says, we don't know what we're going to be like. He's talking about Christ coming back, isn't he? He says, we don't know what we're going to be like. But we know, he, said, he didn't say we think or we speculate, or any other word you might want to throw in there. He says, we know that's hope. That's expectation. And that's what he says a little bit later in the, in the next verse. He says, we know when he shall appear, not if he shall appear, when he shall appear, 
We'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He said, we know that. And we know he's going to appear, not if he's going to appear. It's just a matter of when. And he says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. And so everyone who expects Christ to come back, expects to see him in his glorified state, expects to be caught up, expects to stand before God in judgment. Everybody that actually legitimately, truly expects that, he says he purifies himself. He means he's pure. Because you can earnestly expect that to happen and do nothing. And we see that hope intertwines with what we've read about faith and obedience and all of these things that we begin to study, he says it's, hope is, is one of the unseen things that produces this result, this action. And doing things God's way is a way of hope. It's a way that produces hope. It's a way of wisdom. In Psalms chapter 104 and verse 24, he says, O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. And so I want us to remember that when God does something, He does it in wisdom. He said, how manifold are your works? Manifold means having many parts going into one. We think of different kind of manifolds that we might be familiar with. How manifold are your works? How many, how numerous are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The church is no exception. When God had a plan for the church before the foundation of the world, that wasn't something that was thrown together. There wasn't something that he didn't think about or he didn't see coming or anything of that nature. He made that in wisdom. He made those plans in wisdom. Everything that he's done has been done in wisdom. In a wisdom that is beyond ours. In Romans 11 and verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth and riches, depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. And so... The best wisdom that we can come up with, it still, it doesn't compare. Everything that God has done, He's done with a depth of wisdom that's beyond mortal man. And that includes His design for the church. It includes His design for the home. It includes every way. God's way is the best. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verse number 22. He says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, Have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whomever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was its fall. And so when we're talking about wisdom, again, we can isolate that out as a separate concept, but we almost have to come back around and equate it to some of the other concepts that we've talked about, haven't we? Because Jesus said, whoever hears these things of mine and does them, didn't we call that obedience earlier? I'll liken him to a wise man which built his house on a rock. 
And so being confident and convicted in God's way being the best is, is wisdom by definition. You can do a lot of study about wisdom. I had, a, I had a long study put together about wisdom. I built it into a sermon. I thought, boy, this is a really good sermon about wisdom. And I had all these points and all these components and all these aspects of wisdom. And my last verse was Matthew chapter 7. And I thought, it looks like I really overcomplicated this. Because Jesus said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'll liken him to a wise man. And the world might liken you to something else. There might be another label that somebody else gives you. But if the Lord likens you to a wise man, I want to tell you this evening that you're wise. Because that's, he's the standard. He's the one that gets to measure. He's the one that gets to make that determination. And he boiled it down to terms that simple. There's simplicity in Christ. Jesus said, if you hear what I say and do it, I'll liken you to a wise man. God's way is the best. He has a plan. He knows how to build. He knows how to make a structure that will last. And men have come along and they've made their adaptations and they've brought their change orders into the church and they've tried to restructure and they've tried to reorganize. And things that are of men fail and they fall and they pass away. But what God does, it lasts. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And His dominion endures throughout all generations. And he's still a king. And he's still the Lord of Lords. And he still rules over his church. That which is built upon his plan that was in place before the foundation of the world. In Matthew 7, verse number 7, Jesus said, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. And it would be fantastic if every choice we came to was like those flashing signs on the highway where it says merge left and it has a little arrow. And if there was just a big flashing sign with every choice we had that said God's way is right over here, wouldn't that be great? It would be easy and we could, we could be lazy and everything would be great, right? But it takes a little bit of work. It takes some dedication. It takes some searching. But if that's what we're looking for, then we can find it. And that's what Jesus said. If we're looking for God's way, we'll be able to find it. Paul said when you read, you can understand. And so if we're searching out God's way, then we'll be able to find it. And that'll increase our faith. And we can put it to the test and we can examine it and we can look out. And we can see when deviation is made from God's plan. You can do your church history homework and you can see what kind of wrecks are made. And you can see the arguments that people made for doing certain things and bringing certain things uh, maybe into the church and things like that. And it sounds like wisdom a lot of times. A lot of times it sounds like, I don't know what's wrong with that. It seems like it might be a good idea. Other than it's not God's way. It wasn't God's way. It wasn't what God said. And that's where wisdom comes in to where we have to be able to say, if it's not in the plans, it's not good. I don't have to be able to explain a whole bunch past that than to know that simple truth that God's way is best. And if somebody comes along trying to sell you a change to God's plan, that you need to reject that out of confidence and conviction in His Word. Finally, this evening in Jeremiah 29 and verse number 13, it says, And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Does that sound familiar? 
as we wound up back where we started in Hebrews chapter 11. God is, and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so the exhortation this evening is that you diligently seek God's way. As that pertains to the church and how the church is established, how it's organized, the worship of the church and all those things, that you seek out God's way in that. That you do that in your homes. And you set your home up the way God intended for it to be set up. That you do that in all aspects of your life and your decision making. And you start making choices and you think, well, this is, this is just a little choice. Wisdom recognizes and understands that all those choices have a consequence. And look for God's way in all of those choices. That's diligence. Jesus said it this way, he is faithful in that which is least. is faithful in much also. So seek out the Lord's way in your life. God's way is the best. There's no doubt about that. And I hope that we've increased our confidence and conviction in that. And I hope that it'll stir up your minds by way of remembrance to continue uh, uh, to dig into some of these things and uh, invite your attention, Lord willing, as we talk about this in some specific applications as we come through the, uh, the remaining nights of the meeting. If you're here tonight and you're not doing things the Lord's way in your life, the scripture says if your heart condemns you, that God's greater than your heart and he knows all things. So if, you're, if your heart's been touched by the word of God tonight and you recognize the need for change, we're here to serve one another in love. So if you have any kind of spiritual need, please let that be known tonight. If we can assist you uh, by obedience to the gospel, if you've been taught the gospel and you need to obey the gospel this evening, this congregation stands ready to assist you in that. If you need the prayers of your brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe you're battling with a sin problem, maybe you're discouraged, maybe you need strength or encouragement, any number of things, if you have a spiritual need, we're here to serve. If you'll let that be known by having a seat on one's front pews while together we stand and sing a song, Spencer.